0: I was like, "Hey, I want to get a mental health professional. I want to get a injury specialist, and I want to get a dietitian on board, so that what we're doing, we actually know what the limits of our scope are and giving better service to our clients." And now I look up today, and we've got, you know, Doctor Nick Licamelli, who's a DPT. We've got Amanda Rizzo, who's a licensed clinical uh, counselor, has a master's degree in psychology, Um, and we have uh, Steve Steve Taylor, who's a registered dietitian, on staff.
1: Hey guys, welcome back to another conversation in the birth of an industry. This was another easy choice for me. After chatting with Lane, I I knew my second conversation had to be with Eric Helms. I remember, uh, again, pre-social media, I was doing a fitness camp, speaking at a camp in California, and Eric was there, I met him, and I think maybe even Alberto Nunes was there. Uh, a couple other people, but just being out in the Sacramento area, and he was uh, living there, I think, maybe, maybe still finishing his bachelor's degree before he went on with his master's. We talked a little bit about that in the conversation. But I, I really felt an incredible kinship right away because, A, personalities, again, you know, t- seemed to have a little bit of a more, um, bond, I guess you'd say, just in terms of our our personality types. And he took it very seriously that he was going to head up a pursuit, not only in academics, but for the sake of growing the science base of of a lot of different areas. When when you look at uh, exercise science from the the physical side, the training side, muscular uh, development and, and strength training versus nutrition versus even Uh, How we interact now in business. He's he's doing some some great research uh, with with you know grad students of his, and I think you're going to see that as another voice in our industry. We're very lucky to have him because he does create so much of a tempered, sophisticated element to what we all want to achieve as coaches. What what we want our industry to be. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with my friend. Eric Helms, Doctor Eric Helms, my my friend, Doctor. are we are we like co mentors, mentees to each other at this point? What what are we in our relationship?
0: That's a good question. I definitely consider you a mentor, um, and, and you know I the do. saying. Well, then I'm honored. I was going to say something that was both complimentary and insulting, as I want <laughs> to do, which is what I would expect. <laughs> So I'll leave it there, though. I, I won't, I'll just let, let them guess at what I could have said that would have been incredibly clever. So,
1: Well, if memory serves, you and I met for the first time in Sacramento, California. Is that right? Is that the first time mm-hmm. we officially shook hands yes. and said hello to each other? So I was, I was presenting at a camp. Uh, I believe you were still in college or, or heading into grad school at some level. And uh, yep. I'm interested in just at that point in your life, because we're talking a decade or more ago, what your what your goals were then, and if mm-hmm. you saw yourself where you are now?
0: Yeah, I, I this is kind of one of those cool things where the, the big picture answer is, I'm doing exactly what I planned to do, plus a little more, and I didn't know what it would have been, um, and that feels good. Um, so at that point, that was 2008, almost positive it was 08, because I think. Um, Birdo and Brad and myself were both, uh, no, 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 Brad and Brad, Brad Loomis, and myself, were going to compete in 09 and Berto had just like, I think finished, or he was in the middle of his contest prep for 08. Um, it's possible it was 09. I don't remember. It was either 08 or 09. I was in a very similar place uh, in my life in, in both of those situations. I was a personal trainer. Um, you know what? It was 09. I know for sure, because I wasn't hanging out with Brad Loomis until 09. So it was 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, this was right at the very burgeoning beginnings of uh, 3DMJ, where um, we had all met one another. I met Berto in Alberto Nunez in 07. We competed together in, in both of our first natural bodybuilding shows. Um, and I was you know, heavily influenced by... I would say one of your direct successors, as well as you, Lane Norton, um, as well as, as was Birdo. But we were both very hopelessly lost at that point. It wasn't a good season for either one of us. No one has a good first season. Um, but our learnings from 07 were that we wanted to take a more uh, evidence-based, maybe scientific approach. That's how we thought of it at the time. We needed to keep upskilling, getting more experience, and you know, becoming students of the game. Um, so I had been... Actually, Berto is the one who turned me on to your stuff. So i had been following your stuff and uh, seeing you interact with him on like the forums and stuff like that since around 07. So uh, when you held the, the seminar with uh, the now heads of uh, at least two thirds of the heads of the WNBF, um, Bob and Tina in Sacramento, I was like, this is amazing. And uh, you guys did a little pro series camp, which I think you're revitalizing. You're going to start doing that again, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So yeah, at that point, I was doing my uh, my bachelor's online uh, with the California University of Pennsylvania, which was one of the first few and at the time like best ranked online schools. This is back in the in the day where an online school was something that people would be skeptical about, and now in 2022, after two years of COVID, that's just called school. Would so you, would you actually like mail things in to be graded on paper? So, it wasn't. It wasn't. That it wasn't correspondence school. It yeah. was online. So I took the, a
1: couple of classes like that with the IU Med School.
0: Yeah, that that is a, a whole another level of uh, <laughs> of old school. Yeah, like using paper mail. <laughs> yeah. Geezer. Um, no, no. It was. It was interesting. So the format, which I've actually seen copied many, many, many times since, and is still kind of like the basis, which has been added onto. Uh, now, geez, thirteen years later, um, is that you have certain number of assignments, of course, as a curriculum, all that good stuff. Um, And you watch pre-recorded lectures instead of live. I think that's probably the one different thing. Um, And then there's basically a forum that's embedded in either, you know, Blackboard or whatever online uh, learning uh, platform you're using. And there is a topic for each week and you're expected to contribute to it, like answer or address the main question and then respond to people multiple times. And then, uh, you know, depending on the class and the level you're at and the progression that might require like, and you better like reference your stuff, you know? So it's, it's, uh, and it's moderated by, you know, like a TA and then there's actual professor and they give you, you know, feedback and they have office hours, which you can, you know, contact them through and all that. Um, so the program I was in was the, a bachelor's in sports management with a specialization in fitness and wellness. And I think that's still around at California University of Pennsylvania, but it's slightly changed. Um, To get into it, uh, it's either a a full-length program, or if you already have an associate's degree, you can get into it and it's an accelerated two-year course. Um, And importantly, you could only get into it if you were working at least a certain number of hours as a personal trainer in the industry. So it was designed as a uh, continuing education, step up for active personal trainers, which is exa- exactly what, what I was at the time. I had started personal training in 05 after I got out of the military. So at that point I was an early career, you know, four years into a personal trainer who was thinking about, you know, how do I transition to becoming a bodybuilding coach? So this is coming back around to your original question, um, Oh, nine, that year that I started prepping, I hired Lane Norton to be my coach and him and you were the only people I was aware of that were doing contest prep in natural bodybuilding and doing it online. There probably were others, but I think it was like happening via DM on like the bodybuilding.com forums and stuff like that. Um, And, you know, I think prior to that, I had been before I was really aware of natural bodybuilding. Like you heard things about like Olympians talking about their coach, like, you know, Chad Nichols or. honey rambot or whatever but that seemed very and i eventually found out was very different to what you know a natural bodybuilding coach does there's no necessarily uh provision of sports supplements uh there's a reason why they charge like five grand a month instead of you know a couple hundred dollars (laughs) so anyway uh, that's a whole nother story but um so yeah getting the opportunity to kind of uh learn at the feet if you will um from you and also a bunch of wbf pros as i'm also an, an athlete and someone at the time, it was very, and still is very motivated to excel as an athlete, it was a really cool opportunity. So myself, Brad, and Berto attended that, uh, that, that I think it was a weekend long seminar. Mm-hmm.
1: So, so you had left the military, got into personal training, you knew you were going to compete as a bodybuilder. With that bachelor's degree, were you thinking ahead, I want to be in academia? Or was it more to just improve yourself as a competitor?
0: You know, the funny thing is that I don't think I knew what academia was. And that is one, I think, shortfall of most bachelor's programs in the States, especially is that the way you learn and the way you're presented with what a university is, um, is a place to learn the rules about things, you know, so then you can go get a job. Um, And you aren't really aware, like I didn't really get until I was well into like maybe maybe that year and the year after that, oh, like the things like like research is done in universities by maybe some of the same people who are teaching me and then some people who are doing PhDs and masters. Um, but I didn't really understand the distinction. And so I think it for me, the, the, what I knew in my head from around say six months into being a personal trainer was that I eventually want to learn how to help strength athletes and bodybuilders that's really interesting to me. And also I want to seek this out for my own knowledge as, as an athlete. So it started as I want to become the best athlete I can be. And then essentially going, this is a mixture of, I want my passion to also be my job, but also I'm purely interested by the curiosity of the science of physiology and, and doing this. Um, and the applied version of that is coaching. So I had interest in both in trying to help others achieve their athletic goals and also as a way to get better myself. So that had started, that, say, so that was maybe a realization around early 06. Mm-hmm. Um, so now three years later at that point in 09, I had more concrete goals. I was like, oh, I want to be like Lane Norton or Joe. And I had the, I'd actually written the business plan as for 3D muscle journey for my, I want to say it was like my sports economics or sports planning class that was part of that, that bachelor's degree. Um, and it was only maybe it was right around that same time that we had that seminar that I basically printed that out, showed Jeff Berto and, uh, and then eventually Brad, who we brought on, uh, cause he actually had more business experience than any of us as a gym owner in Portola and said, Hey, what do you guys think about this? And it wasn't a coaching business at the start. It was mostly a, a, a way to subsidize coaching used to subsidize providing information to the, uh, the natural bodybuilding community because at the time, and I'm sure this is you know echoed in many different regions, but it's very region specific, natural bodybuilding wasn't that big in California. I mean, it was, but there were very only, like the most ubiquitous shows were much lower quality. I'm not gonna throw any organizations under the bus, but let's just put it this way. Uh, Bob and Tina had their one show and they were trying to expand at that time. So there was like the Cap City, which became the mayhem but there was no real other like high quality natural shows. And the biggest shows were all NPC shows. And when you'd go to some of these natural shows, you'd see the coaches of some of these natural athletes were big, you know, unreasonably big. Let's put it that way to be a natural competitor, high level NPC coaches. Um, So as you know, at that time, if you wanted to even bring up the idea of not cutting water, you were going to get a bunch of questions from the audience and, and you're going to be facing a sea of anecdotes Um, that you would have to then fight back with your anecdotes and then add some science and then have a discussion. And you'd move the needle one degree for them to go like, okay, maybe you don't have to, you know? So um, the mission statement was born out of our experience as competitors, seeing that there's a lot of people shooting themselves in the foot. You know, they are doing all this stuff to try to look better and not simply knowing I need to lose 10 more pounds, you know, because they've got some person who's five, six and competes in the super heavyweight division as their coach. (laughs) So,
1: You know, that's a really, that's a really good example of how we stand on the shoulders of giants and the fact that in, in the coaching realm of contest prep, I had no idea what I was doing. I was just simply being asked to coach people. And I said, yes. And all of a sudden I have hundreds of clients and I have to rearrange my entire business around this, never created it intentionally. Matter of fact, after several years, I didn't want it. And then uh-huh. there were people on the periphery, like yourself saying, well, there's, that's a thing, like there's something yeah. there, let's make it better. And so you, you, you saw it more from an academic standpoint, as well as coaching, whereas I was just doing it as coaching. And I'm very interested in comparing how you think now to how you think even prior to that. So let's go back to a very young Eric Helms. What was the very first time, whether it was at a workout or watching an action figure on TV or or you know what when did you say wow i i want to add some muscle to my body i want to do something intentionally as a physical life
0: yeah so i started training in training and enjoying lifting weights in 4 um the first time i had actually lifted weights was probably my sophomore or junior year of high school i ran track and we had a coach who was into like, uh, some, like we had a weight room, um, and that was primarily used by the football coaches, but our track coach would get us in there. And he had us doing like bench press squats, power cleans, and he taught us that stuff. And I was the guy who would do it if I was being watched, but didn't enjoy it and didn't care. And was like, well, I'm I'm just going to run because that's what we're doing. Like, I didn't get it, you know? Um, and I didn't, I didn't like it. I didn't really like exerting myself, and I think I mean, psychoanalyzing myself as I look backwards is I the idea of pushing myself to my limit was scary because what if my limits weren't good enough, you know? So I was often basically the dodgeball, you know, mentality of you know if if you if you if you never try hard then you don't fail, like you know, because you could have, you yeah, know, maybe, maybe you could have done better. Um, so I, but something in me, I think, kind of kept progressively exposing myself to challenges and pushing my limits to maybe build enough self-efficacy to keep taking it to the next level. So, um, I didn't come from a family that, uh, of means. So if I wanted to go to, for my ability to actually go to go to university and go to college and do my education, um, required that I, I find money, which meant that I, instead of wanting to take student loans, cause I saw how that, you know, crushed my mother's, uh, you know, financial situation that she was paying off her student loans and we we're always being called by, debtors and stuff like that. Uh, I was always, I was completely afraid of debt. So, um, I don't think I ever had a credit card expenditure until I was in my late twenties, um, which I found it was a problem. Like you have no debt and I can't get a car. It's a ridiculous system, but that's a totally different story. So anyway, um, I joined the military and that was meant to be a, you know, a career path that maybe I was going to stick with or get into law enforcement, but I very quickly realized I didn't want to do that. Um, so I'm still very fortunate that I got the experience of pushing myself hard in basic training, building some self-efficacy, doing a little bit of growing up because I was like 18, um, and also that it paid for two-thirds of the schooling I've done. And I've done a stupid amount of schooling, not not like Dr. Joe level of stupid amount of schooling, but but basically I was in school from... The military onwards because I was a uh, Arabic translator, which requires two years of learning a language. I actually got most of an associate's degree done through the, the, the career path I had as an enlisted airman. So you could say that I've been in school from tw- two thousand two all the way to twenty seventeen. So there was like fifteen years of school. And as a full time professor, I, I would say you're you're moving ahead of me. So
1: uh, you
0: know, <laughs> well. I I am but a research fellow and I'm definitely not full-time because I spend so much time on like math and, and other things. Like I have the same supervisory load. So like being on committees and and helping students and mentoring that a full-time professor would, but I don't have the administrative responsibilities, nor do I teach the classes, which is a pretty good gig. Um, I I also don't have, I don't also don't have their salary. So I, (laughs) I guess it all works out. So.
1: Well, so let's head back a little bit. I, I did want to touch on your military career because mm-hmm. I think when you and I had dinner in Tasmania a few years ago, I think that's the first time I realized that, that you and Barb had been in the military and, and I had been as well. And I was just kind of shocked by that. So uh, I'm curious, besides just getting um, the, the GI Bill and so forth, what, what draw you there? What, what, what made you feel like, man, this, this is a potential career?
0: Yeah. So, um, for me, I think, you know, this is something that you hear a lot of bodybuilders say as they seek some level of control in their lives. Um, so I was drawn to law enforcement probably because of some experiences I had as a young kid. Like our home was broken into, I think five times from when I was from the age of like five to 12, before we moved out of where we were. Um, so, and I think, this is going to get super deep, but like my parents also divorced at a very young age. So I remember, uh, and I've come to some of this through therapy over my life that I do a lot of things to control my environment so that maybe I feel safe or in control or whatever. And that's also something you hear a lot of bodybuilders talk about. They enjoy the ability to manipulate things and get a predictable outcome. Um, and you know, the easiest way you can find a super neurotic, freaked out, bodybuilder asking you kind of crazy questions, which we both had, you know, blowing up your DMs is when they're not getting the predictable outcome. They're like, I'm doing this. I'm following the rules, but I'm not getting shredded. Or I'm not getting big. Like, oh my God, you know, and it's very obvious there's something deeper than an athlete going, you know, I'm not making progress at the expected rate. It's, it's more like the existential crisis is crashing down on them. So if we want to get real deep, I think I was drawn towards law enforcement, probably for that emotional need. But then when I became more aware of the political situation and just the way things were operating and the the position of the U.S. and the U.S. military in the world, I didn't really want to be a part of that. Um, And that's not an indictment of our service members. I'm proud of my service. It's more of an indictment of the time uh, and the the administration. So I joined. I was in basic training. uh, And see if you can put this together. From August to September 2011. So, sorry, 2001, excuse me. So 9-11 happened while I was in basic training. And then very quickly, uh, you know, in response to, I'm not going to get into the whole, like the, the, you know, politics of this time, but I think we made a very strange decision to go invade Iraq. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was basically what I was a part of. And I, and I was just uh, disillusioned because of that to some degree. So anyway, uh, the upside like like you mentioned is that i I, I was able to now afford uh, the the university. I also found that I was in like in high school I ran track and I was decently good at it. but I thought that I was really not inherently a good athlete and that I was unathletic. Um, but in the air Force, I was typically I was almost always maxing out like the the categories for push-ups and the runtime getting the the best PT score you could get. And I w- became a volunteer uh, physical conditioning mentor to people who were struggling with it. And I led our PT things. So I don't know if I enjoyed it a whole lot, but it was definitely, um, it was definitely me gravitating towards something that I was getting rewards for. Hey, you're good at this. Do you want to do this? Like, sure. Like I can do pushups and runs, So sure. I'll, I'll yell at someone else to do it and it was very like proto personal training. Um, so I think there was a hint there that, that, that taught me that maybe I do have some physical, uh, capabilities that I could capitalize on later. But it wasn't until uh, 04, which is near the end of my military career that I got like, quote unquote, bitten by the iron bug. And that came at a time in my life where I had some uh, relationship strife and uh, some very, at the time, uh, challenging emotional periods that then I think, I, I, therefore, I sought some outlet for control. And it started in a relatively. Uh, probably overzealous, overtraining, masochistic kind of tilt that it often does, but then it transformed into something healthier as the years went on. And then it became a, I would say, competitive bodybuilding was a truly transformative experience for me, where I realized just what I could do if I just pushed past my comfort zone and just put it all out there and said, you know what, you may or may not be good enough, but just put everything into it and see what happens. And I would say between 07 and 09, I credit... Some things that happened to me in my life that 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 also pushed me towards uh, adversity, but also just those you know artificial self-imposed processes of contest prep that really brought out my understanding uh, that I'm uh, have more capacity than I ever thought, um, and that's when my life totally changed. I was like, I want to start a business. I want to be this bodybuilding coach. You know, Lane Norton and Joe are doing it right. I want to learn from them. I'll hire I'll hire Lane. I'm going to go to this. Uh, You know, this thing with Dr. Joe that he's putting on, uh, I'm going to read everything they've ever written and listen to everything they've ever said and go to school, get my degree. And then I think I started to get that same process of building self-efficacy through the intellectual side of it as well. So I was, I've always been on the smaller side as a bodybuilder. And that's something I had to work very hard on to be like acceptable at the level I am. And I've had to rely on like good posing, decent symmetry, and uh, good conditioning to, to, to do well as an amateur and to get a pro card in a small organization. Um, but what I started to see that I was excelling at was understanding the physiology, um, being a logical thinker, uh, being able to parse through research, and leveraging my intellect as a way to progress and also help others. So that became something that I was getting rewarded for. And I became like the go-to guy in my gym as a personal trainer and like the go-to guy on like the bodybuilding.com forums, the more time I spent on there. And I think that that social acceptance and reward, like there is always in bodybuilding, there's like the athletes who are like, oh my God, Tom Platt has amazing legs, but there's also like, oh, you know, the guru, you know, like, like Vince Garanda, like everybody listens to him, you know, type of thing. So I was uh, really enjoying the social re- rewards and acceptance of, of kind of fitting into that guru spot where. I felt like a bit of an imposter because I wasn't big enough, you know, like probably all bodybuilders feel, <laughs> but, um, but I think I felt like I belonged and just to kind of give you some underlying psychology of it. Like when we started 3d muscle journey, uh, Brad, Jeff and Berto were all WMBF pros. They, uh, you know, by, by 09 and pros in multiple organizations and I was not. So I had like this alphabet soup after my name just to try to feel justified next to them. Of all the various like certifications i had done because i hadn't even i hadn't even finished my bachelor's yet so i was like bsc like i'm a you know i'm a candidate for my bachelor's and then i had like cpt nasm ces pes you know all this all this stuff that was um it was like alphabet soup compensation uh for for standing next to Berto basically i remember one time i sent my name because usually i
1: just put phd leave everything else mm-hmm. off and it's like like two or three lines i did that to somebody one time just to uh just to make a point but uh, <laughs> but but let me let me catch up to you for a second because our our paths converged in many ways mm-hmm. so uh i i also was in the air force and part of that was in a sense to kind of grow up and and i i was in a very poor family who couldn't afford college so if i wanted any kind of future outside of just working in a factory it had to be that way um and you know there there are a lot of parts of me I probably didn't understand until I was in my 30s. Some of what you just described with your propensity for th- the need of control, mm. um, I I had a mother who by the time I was maybe 10 or 11 or 12 was in and out of the hospital, exploratory surgeries, the Mayo Clinic, just just a lot of a lot of things were happening. And on top of what I just kind of learned, you know, through the next few decades, is there's also a, a pretty strong underlying you know, hypochondriasm there. Um, But at the same time, to a very young boy, you know, I just knew my mother was always dying. Like every day, every week was a sense of this unknowing and loss and so forth. And even prior to that, I had just seen my family as just very unhealthy. Uh, Nobody worked out, nobody ate well, we we didn't have any money. So you're just drinking Kool-Aid and eating bologna. And yet, Somehow I got a message somewhere It had to be through school or PSAs or something about, you know, being healthy and so forth. And so I just remember from five, six, seven years old, just barking at my parents to become healthier. And of course, a child's number one fear is always the, the death of their parents. And then I see my mom literally dying. And so the things that we think are just serendipity through our lives and the things that we think we're controlling, like who knows what level we're really on. Mm -hmm. But, you know, here I am now a health scientist, a pro bodybuilder, you know, all of these things. And that sense of control, you know, look at my education, I think, and I, I mean, this, this is the guiding voice to me, I continue to do things and keep myself busy, because I simply love the knowledge, because now I'm off into humanities and social science and other things. But at the same time, that is a very high sense of control because the more I can learn, the more I can engage in knowing there is that sense of control from a childhood where there was a very, very weak sense of control of even life. So it's interesting. Your, your mom, if I remember, is a marriage and family therapist. So she is some psychology there, uh, in your background. And I'm sure even just the way she parented you, uh, you know, in, in, my perspective looking in at you, there is this sense of just pure confidence in life mastery. Like even if you don't always feel it, you do bring that to those around you. And and so it makes perfect sense that you had that background from your mother, but growing up, what sense of control did you feel you needed and, and, and why were you consciously pursuing things like your, your, the physical mastery of your body, or was it just something else? I got to go to school. I've got to get a degree. I've got to make something of myself. What, what was the real driver behind you that you can recall?
0: Yeah, I think, um, I think a lot of it was just, uh, so I was an only child as well. Uh, I, I still am an only child, but, uh, I had very little social acceptance until maybe junior year of high school when I kind of came into my own and finally was able to express the level of emotional intelligence that I might've had, but I was very quiet about. Um, so I think, yeah, like I was a relative late bloomer as far as social acceptance. And I think the things I was getting into, um, were were things that enabled me to be myself and express my identity and make connections with people, but weren't necessarily viable careers. Like I was interested in music. Um not that music isn't a viable career, but it wasn't for me, let's put it that way. And uh and so the the kind of the holdover, I remember that like the older I got, the less attachment I had to the idea of getting into law enforcement. But it was was, what I'd said I wanted to do out loud. And it was the story I told myself since I was like five, which kind of coincides with when I first started uh, to have some of those experiences with like home invasion and things like that. So um, I think I think by the time I had like signed up, joined the Air Force and I got out of basic training, it was like almost immediate. Like once it was real, I was like, oh, I don't want this. Like it would took like weeks, you know. And I think to some degree, there was, like I mentioned, like the political situation that helped me rationalize why, but I think it also just wasn't for me. Like I did silly things when I was in the Air Force, like, you know, how you're, you have to keep your sideburns no lower than the bottom opening of your, uh, your your ear canal. And I would always have it like right there, like right on the line, you know, and then the length of your hair was a certain length and I would always max it out, you know? Um, so I, I think I just didn't like being told what to do, you know, so I, I definitely had a, I want to figure it out on my own, which probably comes to some degree of with a control thing. Like, you know, I I, don't, I was very, I think, naturally skeptical. So I have some hilarious stories that I, I don't remember, but I was told by my parents. Um, they could never convince me that Santa Claus was real. Um, and I would rationalize through it and ask them questions and be like, Dad, you're the one who puts out the cookies, right? I mean, come on like level with me here, you know, um, or how I got lost at a magic show one time and my mom couldn't find me. And all the kids were sitting watching this magician and I was on the side looking behind the curtains. Um, so I don't think all of this was just learned behavior or in response to, uh, you know, my environment necessarily. I do think there's probably some natural skepticism, which, uh, drove me towards kind of the pathway I'm on. So I think, the control elements for me were mostly through the way I saw the world and intellectual pursuits and things like that. The physical side of it was definitely something late for me because I, I, I did it like I, my dad thought it was a good idea for me to be in a sport and uh, I did track because it didn't require athleticism. You know, you run in a circle and just keep going. You know, like I'm, I'm obviously exaggerating and no disrespect to track athletes, but I uh, was not good at other sports, even when I tried, you know, so, uh, yeah, like kind of that, that pure physical training was, was something that I got into relatively late. And, uh, it was just because I was looking for an outlet during that time period in 04 to, uh, to feel like I had more power, uh, and I had a friend who just happened to be like a recreational bodybuilder with a great physique who had the encyclopedia of bodybuilding from Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he was like, all right, I'll take, it. he took me under his wing. And then I just totally fell in love with it, which is funny because it's, it's all stuff I had done before. And little hints, like I took a, a weight training class in senior year, but I did like the bare minimum just to get the grade, you know, um, and I was break dancing. So I had some basic level of, of, uh, of like strength and, 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 and agility and stuff like that. But, um, I never really identified with it until I had a purpose and a mission behind it, if you will. Uh, and then it was the it was my, my obsession for everything. And I was like, OK, my whole career, my life is going to be this. Um, and I became, you know, incredibly one dimensional. And I pride myself on that today that I'm still on. So <laughs> I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed you brought
1: up breakdancing because I wanted to spring that on you. Um, oh, yeah, I, I'm open about that. You can't not be. So w- when is the last time you have just been in public and just, just
0: busted out into a dance 2019, I think it wasn't so, that long ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, still, I, it's
1: still a possibility.
0: Yeah. So, uh, and I should, I should clarify that that is typically like pop locking, which doesn't require the same level of athletic maintenance as doing like a head spin or a flare or a 90 or something like that. Um, so, and you can see it like every time I do posing routines, I incorporate some yeah. of that pop locking in my routine. So, uh, I enjoy the um, the artistic aspect of bodybuilding. And I think it's interesting that everyone gets different things out of bodybuilding. Some people hate the posing routine, you know. Like uh, I talked to Eric Trexler, and he, I wouldn't say he's like a a, a visceral and a spirit fan or lover of bodybuilding, but he's really interested in the manipulation of his physiology to get that and how like isn't this amazing? How I haven't fidgeted in six months, and I'm always hungry. Like this is so interesting. I have that, but I also just love bodybuilding. Like so. Um, I enjoy the artistic aspect of it. I enjoy the history of it. Uh, I enjoy the nuances of competing. I enjoy the subjective judging process and and analyzing how people see things and, um, you know, trying to get your tan, right. And all that stuff, like the whole, whole shebang, I I take it fully in and all of its flaws, uh, it's something I'm, I'm, I'm wholly invested in. And I think it's because I was the kind of the crucible, which made me into a, a more self-actualized person. So, yeah.
1: It's very interesting that you say that because th- that's one of the things that I owe you, and it's a it's a huge part of I think the future of our sport for a long time. And everybody loves to use those words. I'm so sick of them: evidence based, science based, and so forth. Because mm-hmm. like like what isn't everybody says they are, but unless you're truly looking at that empirical evidence and how it's formatted, you're you're just basically parroting other people. But you're one of those people who are not you're one of those people who are really doing it you're a research fellow and so when you know as you and i have joked before when i just kind of stumbled into coaching on accident and created this entire pandora's box and then i got really burned out i just kind of left and and i mm. i went back into what i started doing which you know our company the diet doc is for general population health transformation it's helping people really live their best lives and bodybuilding was a sport that enthralled me early in my career. And I did that. I spent 16, 17 years as a bodybuilder and a pro and, and I kind of had left that. Mm -hmm. And then along comes Eric Helms and he starts making it cool again and makes, makes real evidence-based practice a thing. And it, it took probably almost another decade of me watching you spearhead that in our industry. And I thought, Damn him. Like he made it fun again. I I have to (laughs) I have to get back in.
0: Just when I think
1: I'm out. (laughs) I really, I I literally had the rest of my life planned and it was not here. And now Mm. here I am. But you know, there there is a nice completing the circle element to that where the, the things that I loved about it and that I wished it was are coming to fruition. So, number one, I thank you for that. And I'm very interested now how you see the the research element of bodybuilding, Mm -hmm. because it's very, very weird to me still to think there's any interest academically to even create research funding for let's teach people how to grow muscle. Let's teach people how to be big. Um, Tell me what you really envision for research in the future.
0: Yeah. So this is actually, I think some some really interesting stuff because this happened kind of before my eyes, there was a big change. Cause like, like I, uh, like I told you when, in 09, when we were first planning this thing and I was writing business plans, there was really just two people that I was aware of. And the kind of, uh, I'll say third generation, if, you know, if you were first generation and Lane was kind of the second generation, if you look at the people who got into, academia who are inspired by this uh, scientific approach to bodybuilding. Um, and not to say that there weren't generations prior to that, like Fred Hatfield and, and folks like that. It's always actually been a part of the history, but I don't think it caught fire specifically in the natural bodybuilding scene. Like it, it's also like anytime you have to talk about like mainstream bodybuilding, it has this kind of drug element. So, and it's kind of forcibly counterculture even more than natural bodybuilding is, which is, you know, still weird niche, but anyway, uh, in this kind of uh, contemporary era, if you will, the, the second or third generation of folks who got into academia, I'm thinking, you know, Jeremy Leneke, uh, and I'm thinking uh, like Peter Fitchin, uh, myself, most of them tried to figure out which schools they could go to and which mentors they could have, which would allow them to study things related to the nutrition or the resistance training that could therefore be potentially applied to bodybuilding. Yes. Um, so for example, Peter, Dr. Fitchin, uh, he studied, uh, like HMB, he did some, uh, and, and, Jeremy Lenicky, he studied, um, uh, uh, BFR, both are things that, you know, think sound super bodybuilding, but if you look at who they studied it on and for what purposes, it was clinical applications of both of them, you know, in muscle wasting disease or sarcopenia, um, or, uh, or conditions where, uh, you know, we're trying to address public health um, so I saw that and I was like, that's cool. I don't want to do that. I want to get a master's degree and a PhD in nutrition and strength training for bodybuilding and strength sport. Like that's what I want to do. And if I can't do that, then, I'm, I'm, I'm probably not going to take my education any further. So the, uh, the question you had earlier, when did I think I was going to get into academia? Probably sometime around 2010 or 11, I was finishing up my bachelor's which I think I finished in 2010. I got my CSCS. And at that point, like each one of those steps kind of kept spurring me on to going like, maybe I'm not just smart ish for the bodybuilding.com forums. Maybe, maybe I could actually keep taking this further. And I feel like I'm, I'm learning more and getting smarter, you know? And uh, I was getting boosted up by, you know, my colleagues at 3DMJ and our clients and my reputation on the forums literal reputation, like little green ticks that you would get on the <laughs> bodybuilding.com forums. Um, and uh, that was kind of the, the era of the PubMed ninja, you know, and I was so I was reading research before I'd actually gotten into uh, the classes in the end of a bachelor's or in a master's where you're actually supposed to be learning how to read research. So I kind of had a leg up so I did my, my master's again through California University of Pennsylvania. They had a very similar program that is people who want to take it a little further in exercise science and health promotion. And you could take a specialization and mine was enhancing sports performance. Um, and at this point, now you're taking research design classes. You're, it wasn't a research-based degree. It was online. So it's just coursework and it finished with a larger project. But um, you know, I had, I did these kind of, non-publishable lit reviews on multiple topics. And I was engaging with a ton of research and I was understanding what academia actually is. So by the end of my master's there, and that was an accelerated year and a half long program, I think, um, which I was doing during my 2011 contest prep. And uh, while I was teaching at a personal training uh, community college program, uh, and also getting into the kind of the, the meat and potatoes of when 3DMJ was really taking off, that was the the year I coached Matt Ogus to the stage. So we really blew up. My life was crazy in 2011. I was coaching full-time. I was teaching nearly full-time, like 25, 30 hours a week. I was a full-time student and I was contest prepping. Um, I had like two hours a day that weren't anything besides eating, training, studying, coaching, or, uh, or teaching uh, or learning. So um, anywho around that point, I was like, I have a pretty good work ethic and I maybe have the intellectual chops to take this further. And not a lot of people remember this, but I, I, but first I put out the call and I was like trying to find a good place to study. And I just kind of fell upon AUT. Um, I reached out to, I believe Brett Contreras who had, who did his PhD at AUT. And he said, I'm so like, he had a blog post titled I'm so glad I live in a world where I can get a, a PhD in strength conditioning. And I was like, Oh, that's that's legit. Like that's 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 not HMB to treat you know muscle wasting disease. You know, that's that's uh, training people to get bigger and stronger. Okay. Um, so I reached out to him and he put me in touch with who has become my my academic advisor and mentor and uh, you know supervisor. As now I moved into a collegial role with him, John Cronin, who at the time was the director of the Sprints Labs, Sports Performance Research Institute, in New Zealand. Um, and at first I was looking at like UC Davis, which is just 30 minutes from our house. I was looking at, uh, Sacramento state and I was looking at potential other places. And I realized, hold on, I have a burgeoning online business. I could, I could literally study anywhere. So I started looking at like Loughborough in, uh, in the UK. And I contacted folks at ECU, Edith Cowan in Perth, Australia. And there was either, you know, there was like, we have some availability or I didn't get a response or yeah, I don't have funding, um, but when I got in touch with John Cronin, he was like, hey, let's jump on a Skype call. And we talked for an hour. And by the end of it, he was talking about what my master's project would be. And I had to slow him down and be like, so hold on, am I accepted? And he was like, we'll take care of that, you know. Um, and the, the ethos at AUT is that you don't go there to figure out what is someone in academia already studying and you get to, to, to bow down and become their, their indentured servant and do one little study arm of what they're doing. Um, it is, what do you want to study? Do we have the the personnel and the resources to do it? Uh, and if, if not, how can I figure out how to get that for you and then study what you want? So when I told him like, Hey, I want to study, you know, the effect of protein on, on dieting bodybuilders. He was like, sure. yeah, you know, let, let, Let's, let's make that happen. You know, and that ended up becoming my, uh, my second master's uh, the the requirements in the UK, Australia, New Zealand system is if you want to do a PhD, you already have to have research done. So a, uh, a master's by coursework, which is all that I had, wasn't enough. So I did a what's called a, an MPhil, a master's of philosophy. Sometimes you'll see it as a master's of research, but it's basically just uh, just a one-year-long research project. So it's a what they call a 120-point thesis. Um, and to actually be able to afford to do that, to move myself, my two cats, and, and Barb, my wife, to uh, to New Zealand, which she was stoked about, Um, I remember the conversation and we went on a walk while I was, you know, dieting and she was, uh, you know, just joining me to be nice. Uh, I said, Hey, so two options, UC Davis, 30 minutes from here, we don't move. Uh, and I go work with Keith Barr after a year of doing biochemistry work at Sac State just to get on that level. So I can study muscle in a Petri dish, or we figure out what it's like to to go live in a foreign country. And I study like strength conditioning and she immediately went New Zealand. And I was like, all right, cool. So I had the blessing. Um, so I say we saved basically all our money, and this is part of the reason why I was teaching full time and had a full, full load of uh, students because it's extremely expensive to get over uh, to a foreign country and uh, and and move there. Let alone to get an offer of place and to get accepted and then get a student visa. I had to have paid my one year long fees for the masters in advance, so it's like you need fifteen grand U.S. approximately just gone. Also, you have to show that if you can't find work or if you can't, like if for some reason they're, they're, you're, you're unable to, to get income, that you have enough money in the bank to support yourself. So I had to have like also 10 grand just sitting in an account, which I couldn't touch. And I had to buy plane tickets there and back. So all in told within like a week, 20 grand gone, you know, just like, like that. And as someone who at the time was uh, in, a, in a much more working class income level, that was a huge challenge. Um, and I had to not only use a GI bill, but also take a student loan out, which I had paid back very quickly, which was kind of anathema to my soul, but I had to do it. Um, so that was a, a rough period. But what I did was I, I basically did what I call cyber begging. So I had two GoFundMe uh, campaigns where I used what social media presence I had in 2012. And I said, hey, I've gotten so much out of bodybuilding. And I made a video and I put it on the, the forums and on my Facebook account. Uh, what I want to do is give back. So, you know, I've, I've thus far I've, I've used research to make me better make my athletes better. What I now want to do is actually do bodybuilding and powerlifting specific research to give back to you. Um, and I probably can't afford to do it, you know? So uh, if you guys want to help me do this research without living out of my car, feel free to donate, give whatever you can. And I was blown away between those two over a six month period, GoFundmes. I raised almost five grand USD. Damn you. So I'm going to, yeah, man. As soon as we're done with
1: this, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to yeah. start a
0: GoFundMe. That's the business model. Just ask people for money and, uh, and then, you know, just do whatever wanting, you want with your life. I was life. wanting
1: to do a third doctorate actually in the UK, one in, in uh, creative nonfiction. So I'm going to do that. D- d- there p- you go. P- please
0: send me to school. Yeah. You just tell, uh, you know what? I want to write creative nonfiction about bodybuilding to give back to the community. Exactly. And, uh, yeah, I think, I think you'll, they'll be, Shelling out. Professors. Everyone wants to read that. Well, so. un-
1: unfortunately, when I actually went to writing school, did did a master's in writing. I went to do fiction. i like I wanted something just like retirement, fun, get away from what I do in daily life. Very quickly within one semester, I was whipped right back into nonfiction because I met some great science writers and personal essay mm. writers. I'm like, this is already what I do, and you guys are, you know, you're showing how well it can be done. But yeah. my my youngest daughter is very interested. She's already doing some, some digging on doing her grad work in Stockholm, Sweden. So I I, I keep looking for ways to get out of the U S and when she said that, I said, Oh, that's fantastic. Funnel that information to me. Maybe I can actually go teach over there. And she's like, no, you're not going, (laughs) you're not, you're not riding my coattails. Yeah. I I keep getting (laughs) shut shut down. I'm just going to have to stay in Evansville, Indiana.
0: Yeah. I couldn't keep my mom out of New Zealand. Eventually she got over here. Did she really? Yeah. She, she, uh, she is, she got here in 2019. So, wow.
1: Yeah. You know, you brought up your wife Barb and and mm-hmm. I've gotten to meet her and spend some time with her a couple of times and just one of the coolest people I've ever met. It's like, she is so amazing. Um, when, when we were over in Tasmania together because Callan Richardson, our host and you, me, Barb, uh, I guess, kind of all kids at heart in the the nerdy world that we were at a, at a science museum uh everybody just decided to stop looking at their watches and you guys ended up missing your flights, which I still yep. apologize for. Uh, but tell me a little bit about that dynamic. Like, like you and Barb, she travels with you and she just loves to check out all these cities. And and you seem to have a, a phenomenally hipster-ish, like post-millennial kind of relationship. And so, so how does that fit into what you do in daily life?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, like our relationship has been all of the uh like the modern, modern tropes to the point, or like the modern counterculture things that eventually are now just like hipster tropes. It's great. So, uh, we eloped and we didn't actually have our proper wedding until we'd been married for five years. And it was uh, like, the total cost was like five grand. And it was on the the lawn of my, uh, my aunt's house in Hawaii. Um, and we had like, like six people there and my mother married us, even though we didn't need an officiant because we were already married. And it was like, you know, it had elements of Hawaiian culture and and, and all this stuff. And, you know, like uh, Barb's mom made her dress. So it was like absolute hipster tropes. It was great. Um, when we first eloped, we didn't even have rings and totally freaked out the uh, the, the Georgian uh, pastor who, who like, you know, did, did the eloping for us and caught him off guard. He had to be like at least 186. Um, so, yeah, there was all that. And then we... Yeah, we've had a very, uh, I guess, non-traditional marriage. Nothing nothing crazy, but just, you know, we don't necessarily fit the, the typical roles. And uh, we met in the Air Force because she was also an Arabic translator. And like me, found it. She really did not enjoy the job and both of us did not want to re-up. Um, so we both spent the next, well, still are, uh, I guess, geez, it's been 16 years since we uh, got married and, uh, we, she's basically spent that whole time trying to find herself like I have. So she had a, a pretty cool career in, um, an animal welfare. So she got it. She got a degree specifically on how to run shelters. And then she worked as a zookeeper here in Auckland for two to three years, um, before she just found that like very rewarding, but also very emotionally draining. Um, and uh as a zookeeper she was working at Auckland Zoo which is a very like progressive zoo that does a lot of conservation work as well but it's still a zoo you know and and so there's the kind of this you know push and pull between what is the ethical moral decision that she, she just couldn't keep hanging with it um she was a dog trainer before that she taught like pet cpr so a lot of cool stuff but she's also just been an incredibly science interested person so now she is doing her, she's about to finish and potentially upgrade to a PhD in uh, geology, specifically as it relates to astrobiology. So like using extremophiles, you know, life that exists in strange places and the rock record to inform potentially how uh, we would find out more things about like Mars and et cetera. So like real science. That is you know? so
1: insanely cool.
0: Right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, she, she's a badass chick and we have gone, you know, back and forth through eras of one of us supporting the other. Um, so, uh, so for example, when this first 3DMJ thing kicked off, basically from like 06, the very first five years of our, our, our career, I was pulling in pennies. You know, like I just did not have the emotional stamina and the ability to always put a smile on my face to work as a full-time personal trainer. So I capped out around like 20 hours of training a week which as you know, is just simply not enough to pay the bills, you know? Um, so I was, you know, making 20, 20 to 30 K a year in, you know, in California, which is not enough to live on. And so she was basically, you know, waiting tables full-time while going to school, while I was trying to make the 3D and J thing work. And I remember trying to leave personal training early to make to put all my energy into 3D and J and it did not work like 2010. I had to go back to personal training and I thought I was going to have to go back to full-time personal training until I got that job teaching at a, uh, uh, that, that community college program, the associate's degree for personal trainers. And that was the start of when I actually became, the, I had the opportunity to actually generate income. And when we went to New Zealand, we were at the point where obviously we felt we could do that. And, you know, Barb let go of her, like she didn't have any dog training clients because she moved across the world. So she had to start over. And that gave her the opportunity to get to zookeeping and figure out what do I want to do? And now I am, you know, the, the primary income earner and it's kind of flipped while she's in school for, uh, for, for, for her own interests. So it's, uh, it's been a pretty cool back and forth and, um, we've done a really good job, I think, you know, in retrospect, giving each other the space to grow and also being supportive, which I'm very grateful for. So
1: a couple cents ago, you said, you started to say that's when, and I thought you're going to say, that's when the. Eric Helms was born. (laughs) Thank
0: you. Exactly. That's when I, that's when I stepped up and took over the world. Uh, You You know, so I want, I want to go back to something you mentioned about um, how, you know, bodybuilding became something more structured. And that was actually a very intentional process for me because when I got to New Zealand to study at AUT, I was surrounded by other, uh, other masters and PhD students who were like, for example, I was sitting next to a gal named Sarah, who was doing her master's looking at uh, like GPS tracking and sports and analysis and monitoring in a, in a bunch of uh, female soccer players. She was also a soccer coach and soccer strength conditioning coach. So she was spending time when she wasn't working on her thesis, looking at game footage, you know? And then I had uh, my good friend, Scott, now Dr. Scott Brown, was looking at ACL injuries and rugby players. And he was also a rugby coach and a rugby SNC. Uh, and working full time, and also biomechanist. And then, you know, behind me, I had uh, Doctor. Now Seth Lonetsky, who was, uh, you know, an Olympic Taekwondo coach, a boxing coach, an SNC coach for fighters, and also then doing his PhD specifically on um, how wh- what are the kinematics, kinetics, and muscle activation patterns for punching. So he was like doing the first like how to punches work PhD. So I was watching true sports science occur and how it was integrated and how it had far more structure because the sports had more structure and more history than bodybuilding, which is very kind of traditionalist. Um, Like anyone who thinks they're sports traditionalist, bodybuilding's got you. So I was like, how do I bring these same concepts, that same multidisciplinary approach to bodybuilding? And this is when I first sat down with Andrea. This is now I'm kind of bouncing around timelines, maybe around like 2015 or so. I now started my PhD. And I was like, you know what we need is we need to get someone, and this is something you'd already done, which I think is pretty cool. But uh, it's the first time I really applied it. Just a pure bodybuilding, you know, company. I know you had done it for the Diet Doc more broadly with you know with Corey and uh, all the other professionals you got on board. But I was like, hey, I want to get a mental health professional, I want to get a injury specialist, and I want to get a dietitian on board, so that what we're doing, we actually know what the limits of our scope are, and we have a way to safeguard against us doing it wrong and giving better service to our clients. And now I look up today and we've got, you know, Dr. Nick Licamelli, who's a DPT. We've got Amanda Rizzo who's a licensed clinical uh, counselor has a master's degree in psychology. Um, And we have uh, Steve, Steve Taylor who's a registered dietitian on staff. So that all came out of me going like, if, 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 if bodybuilding was a real sport, what would it look like to be a private, very serious, uh, engaged, long-term kind of not just, I want to get a pro card now and then, you know, share it on my Instagram and and look cool guru type thing, but like trying to be stewards of the sport moving forward. What would that look like? What would we need? You know? So I think I tried to emulate these people around me who, while they're looking at game footage, I'm looking at, you know, like nearly nude people, you know, flexing or, or like slowing down someone's deadlift and going like, we're doing the same thing. And they're like, no, no, we're not, you know, (laughs) So, well, yeah. you know, and speaking of, again, you know,
1: standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, that's exactly how we created our company going back 15 to 18 years ago in its current iteration. And I too did that intentionally as if, you know, if this is going to be a legitimate career field, if this occupation were going to stick, what would it look like in kind of creating a model? And that's why I asked you to co-found the Nutrition Coaching Global Mastermind with me as almost a governing body, which, which may mm. evolve or be usurped or, or integrated with, with other organizations. But at some level, there has to be self-governance and self-efficacy of a profession. You know, Everybody starts that way before it's legitimized. And so you know, I'll wrap up with this. You are also a history buff, which is incredibly interesting to me, the fact that you love the history of bodybuilding and strength sport. Um, I guess history has always been a little bit of part of what I've done, but just Mm -hmm. in the last year, I finished a master's degree in social science, which was really based at least half in history. Both of my academic advisors and the the directors of these programs were were Harvard PhDs in history. You know, that's what, what their thing. And so when you look at the history that has led us here, and I, I do credit you as being the strongest voice in creating that legitimization, what do you want the history to be moving forward in the next 20, 30 years? When you retire from this sport and you're just sitting, sitting on the deck, looking over the mountains with, with Barb, what do you want to have left behind?
0: That's a great question. And first, thank you, because that's, a, that's a, an incredibly huge compliment. And I think what I want to see is just simply people thinking more about how to enjoy the sport and get its benefits on their terms and making sure that people know what they're getting into, uh, know know what they're getting into. I think, you know, sometimes this happens very late in, in, in a sports uh identity, career, and, and there can even be efforts to prevent that from happening because it may be something the, the big weeks are scared of. Uh, I'm referring specifically to the traumatic brain injury stuff that's come up in the last years with which started with, you know, in the NFL and actually actively trying to cover that up and suppress that information because they thought it would, you know, destroy you know football. Uh, and then echoing into other sports, you know, any contact sport where that's likely to happen. And of course it didn't destroy football, but now, you know, someone can know getting into it. What are they signing up for? What are the potential risks? And now we actually have things in place to mitigate those risks. There's a certain number of concussions you can get. And we have team doctors and we have concussion screening tests and we have abilities to look at how has it affected you? And do you need to take some time off? And we're actually looking at say, Hey, does does creatine doesn't just help us be jacked and strong. It might actually act as a neuroprotective that could have a role here. What are other things? So all of a sudden, once we stopped having blinders on and purposely ignoring a problem, now people are actually getting better care, which is the opposite of the fears. And I think, you know, this is getting better in bodybuilding. But I specifically remember when I was in your 2009 camp that uh, we split off into subgroups, and I'm not going to name the person. But we had Corey and a uh, a different pro bodybuilder. And Corey was talking about the struggles of basically describing uh, you know, eating disorders and body image issues that can be exacerbated by prep. And the other pro said, yeah, I think that's more of a chick thing. Like that's more of a female competitor thing. And having had a terrible 07 experience, I immediately spoke up and I was like, I don't know. I I, I identify with everything Corey just said, you know, and I think this is really valuable. Like I pushed back immediately. And I realized at that point that the whole, you know, binge eating and having body image issues, dysmorphia, um, the fact that some people, their timeline for when they prep and when their off season begins and ends is basically when they just get too disgusted with binging and they go, I need to fix this. And they're kind of a prisoner to the sport, you know, uh, that, that all I know how to do is crash diet and then binge eat, uh, and just seeing how there is some survivorship bias. Uh, in in bodybuilding and trying to make it more accessible to people or, or to let people know that that's actually what could potentially happen and what to do to prevent it. That's been incredibly important to me. And it's been the career arc for, and it's been, you know, a stronger and stronger portion of 3DMJ over time when it had maybe a little more of like, let's get serious about bodybuilding and use science to be bigger and stronger. It became also, how do I have a sustainable long-term career on my terms? And how do I know if maybe this isn't a good thing for me and I need to be a bodybuilder who's non-competitive and what does that look like? And that's okay. So I think uh, where I would like to see bodybuilding uh, in the future is where that is a fully integrated, accepted and non-stigmatized aspect of the sport so that we see far less people, uh, who are, you know, spit up and shoot out from the sport and that there is a safety net for when people do have negative experiences and it's, it's more acceptable for them to, to get help for it.
1: Incredible. Yeah. And that's, it just couldn't be a bigger deal than you just said, but you, my friend, are already an icon in the sport. And as I said, I, I would not be here right now interviewing you if you had not attracted me back into it because of your focus on not just research, but, but that kind of humanness. And mm-hmm. I, your, your shadow is only going to grow over the sport. I'm very grateful for that. I, I think I'll probably interview you in about 40 more years. And, and then, then I can see if, if you have done exactly what you said but I can't thank you enough for being one of my first guests. I wouldn't have it any other way in my origins series. So Dr. Eric Helms, thank you very much.
0: True honor to hear you say that because you were definitely one of the inspirations for me to get this thing going. So thank you.
1: More work to be done together. Absolutely. All right. Take care, man.
0: Take care.